0: Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. The idea that I want to set before you today is the concept of proverbial wisdom. Everybody, to some degree, seeks wisdom in this life, and they're You know, whether it's advice with regard to what sort of career you might want to go into, what kind of job you want to have, who you might want to marry, sorts of trades and professions you might want to learn. All these things find us in a situation where we don't feel like we have all the answers and we end up seeking some sort of wisdom in the matter. And the Bible provides us a huge amount of content with respect to the idea of wisdom. Much of it is in the form of what I would call proverbial Wisdom in the form of a proverb, truths or truisms. Now, our society is full of all sorts of truisms that, whether someone's a Christian or not, they would be likely to affirm. You see heads nodding when some of them are repeated, and truisms can be cliche or trite. That's a little bit of a cynical view, although I understand it to some degree. Yet, These truisms get said all the time over and over again. So maybe it is a little bit cliche to repeat some of those things. However, they seem to need to be repeated, do they not? So maybe it's a little cliche to teach some of those things or say some of those things. However, apparently we need to hear them again and again because we keep forgetting about them. And few people contest them. You know, some that came to mind as I was thinking about this topic are statements like, A stitch in time saves nine. You heard that one, right? Now, this is the idea that if you have a tear in a piece of cloth or in a shirt or whatever, and you catch it early, maybe stitch it up, put a stitch in there, and you're going to prevent the tear from getting worse and worse and worse so that if you put it off, you might have to do nine stitches to repair the problem, right? And that's a pretty common principle. It's really get in front of a problem, right? before the problem grows to where it requires a lot more intervention to correct it, get on top of the matter, right? As I was thinking about a lot of these truisms and truths, it started making me think about if these things are needful to us in our spiritual lives, can they be found in the Bible if they're really true? If they're true and they're really useful to us from a spiritual perspective... Can they be found in the Bible? You might say, well, why do you think it would be found in the Bible? Well, the Bible claims to thoroughly or thoroughly furnish us unto every good work. It claims this sort of statement about itself. Like if there's something spiritually needful for your instruction, the Bible claims to have it, right? So that's why I would say if there's a spiritual truth that you can glean out of these things, you've got to be able to find this principle somewhere in play in the Bible. And that's not to say if you didn't find it that it doesn't have some utility to it, whatever. It would just mean that it doesn't have the sort of spiritual utility to it, right? So is there a spiritual utility to this idea? Look at Proverbs chapter 13. Now, I see many of you have raised children. And I doubt I'll get much opposition on this idea. Chapter 13 and verse 24. Those of you who have raised children have seen this principle in place. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes, which is an unusual word. This is talking about the punishment of your children. When you see your children going astray, there's a couple of inclinations you can have. You can say, I need to correct that now. Or you could say, well, let that slide. It wasn't that big of a deal. And you kind of play that on a transactional basis with your children, right? This is teaching, he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. That means early, like first thing in the morning is kind of the idea. This is the principle of a stitch in time saves nine. What that means is if you discipline children early on, establish the proper line of authority within the domain of your own family, and you do that betimes, you do it early. You don't wait till they're 16. You start when they're very young and they begin to show some aspects of rebellion or lack of conformity to what you've told them to do. You will find that that single stitch applied early will save you from nine others that will come much later. You see, you've got to apply this thing early. Because a stitch in time saves nine, and you got to apply this discipline to children early. I had a thing at work one time where they were talking about how to save for retirement. 401K, they're going to tell you all this stuff, you know. And these are the principles you need to follow if you want to have enough money to retire. And one of the principles that they teach you in that is that the first dollar you save is the dollar that earns you the most money over the course of your entire life. Saving that money betimes gives it the most time to pay dividends on the back end, right? That's kind of a financial principle that's well known. If you, if you, you know, always things can happen. They always say in the prospectus that past results are not indicative of future earnings, right? So there's always things that can happen. You could get into a war or a time of great unrest or a depression or something like that so that the earnings line maybe doesn't trend Consistently up, but if you look over the period of you know the twentieth century, generally speaking, if you invested money, say, in the stock market, and stayed in there long enough, it eventually goes up and that 's the principle that was in play there, but it is in play not just in stitching up a cut in your clothes and things like that it 's literally in play in your own family and how you dole out discipline i 'll say this as well: I think the discipline that 's doled out, the younger it is, the more betimes it is the less severe the discipline has to be to have its correcting influence. That's why it needs to be done betimes. times. When you get up into later years and there's been nothing done in that respect, you end up in a place where now a child just feels like, I don't really have any constraints on me at all. And it's outrageous that anyone would try to modify my behavior now. Well, now it's not going to take one stitch to correct that problem. It's going to take nine stitches or it's going to take a whole lot more. In fact, it may reach the point where it is uncorrectable. You no longer have the influence required to make that disciplinary correction. I know one of our ablest elders years ago in preaching on this very verse said something along the lines of, when it comes to kids, you got to get the bluff in on them early, Right? If you got a boy, there's a point where he realizes, well, I'm I'm bigger than you now. (laughs) You know, if it just comes right down to that. So I would say proverbially, this verse is in conformity to the idea of a stitch in time saves nine. You get the most return on your investment when that investment is early. That doesn't mean you should be a radically harsh or crazy disciplinarian that's just looking for opportunities to correct. But it does mean that when correction is needful, it's best to do it early, and that pays the most dividends there. There's some others that came to mind here, kind of wondering which ones I want to cover here. If you turn over Proverbs chapter 18, this is a very common one. You hear people say, you got to be a friend to get a friend, right? That's a common saying, and that's almost a direct quotation of Proverbs 18. Maybe the more veiled way of saying that, you probably hear people say things like, you'll catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, right? You hear people say that all the time. Proverbs 18 and chapter 24 says, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother." There's a couple of lessons taught here. The first one is really the one that's captured, I believe, in those truisms that we hear said in common society. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. I mean, if you just present yourself as just a radically unfriendly, inhospitable, difficult person, you're going to find it very hard to make friends and build relationships with people. You know, I mean there's only so much that people are willing to deal with in the day-to-day interactions with people. And if you're constantly kind of being unfriendly, it's likely that people are going to tap out on trying to explore a friendship with you. It's just inevitable, right? The common vernacular is ain't nobody got time for that, right? We don't have time for that stuff. It's just unpleasant. However, if you are a friendly person, you're going to find that this tends to breed an abundance of friendships in your own life. And that's why the Bible says a man that hath friends must show himself friendly. If you are friendly to other people and you extend that to others, you're more like honey, are you not? And less like vinegar. And that's going to be an attractive quality among people. The second part of this verse, though, as we look at it is really important. I've rarely heard anyone say, you know, my problem is that I just got too many friends. Now, I'm talking about real friends. I'm not talking about acquaintances and people you just run around with or whatever. I'm talking about real friends. If you've had a real friend and you have some real friends, you realize how valuable a friendship really is. And I have never heard anyone say, I've got too many really good friends. One of the reasons for that is the second part of this verse. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Now, generally speaking, the statement is often, there's another truism, blood is thicker than water. You ever heard that one? That means your family ties are going to be closer than, really, your baptism ties is kind of the implication there, right? You're going to side with your family over siding with someone who's just a church relationship or whatever. That one, however... Sadly, it's often true, but is certainly not always true. And I know that there are instances where, and many in this church would attest to, that there are relationships I have with my spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ that are closer than my natural relationships with my brothers and sisters. That is not an uncommon occurrence, and it's good news, by the way. You ever thought about that? As an adult person, what could you possibly do to expand the number of brothers or sisters you have, right? You don't have any control over that. By the time you're a full-grown adult, that's pretty well etched in stone. And that's not going to change. However, if there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, you're not completely cut off from the idea of building and having incredible relationships with other people. Friendships that are even of a higher order than the natural brotherhood that's there. That to me is an encouragement to press into the kingdom of God. I have one brother. Love him dearly. Jay and I are very close. Very close. But I've got brothers and sisters in this church. I've got more than one brother, if you know what I mean. And those people are very, very close as well. And that should be an encouragement to everyone. I find that people... Rather than saying, I'm struggling with the issue of having too many friends, I find that people say, I'm lonely. I'm lonely. I don't have enough friends. Well, you're not cut off. If you need a brother or a sister, they're available to you. They can be there in the kingdom of God. Might have to show ourselves friendly to get there, but that potential is there, and it's something that you can foster and press into. So that's another truism. Trying to decide which one. Another one I had here, which I don't think I'm going to speak on because I think everybody kind of gets this. Money doesn't buy happiness. I would suggest if people looking for things to study in the Bible, read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's just a few pages long. And you will find in that book a testimony of King Solomon who, now look, I had all the money. I did all the stuff you could do with it. And at the end of it, it's vanity and vexation of spirit, right? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And much of our society does run after that idea. But that's a personal Bible study you can do. And I definitely believe the Bible teaches that money does not buy happiness. In fact, I suspect that if you look at the people who are the rich and famous, Robin Leach had the lifestyles of the rich and famous many years ago. I'm dating myself on that. Those are almost always some of the most miserable people on planet Earth. Money does not solve problems. It tends to reveal problems. And that's a truth. Most of us, however, do maintain a sense that, well, I hear what you're saying. That's probably true for everybody else. But if I won the lottery, it's going to solve a bunch of problems for me because I know how to deal with all those things. I won't debate you on the matter, but I will simply say that as a matter of principle, money does not solve problems. Not the sort of money we're thinking about. The Lord says, if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's saying the Lord is going to take care of you if you're seeking the Lord and following Him. And David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, right? So God's going to take care of you. The problem is we have highly disparate notions of what it requires to take care of you in this life and how we expect to be taken care of right we're thinking lifestyles of the rich and famous and god is saying with food and raiment with these things you ought to be satisfied right so our society tends to exalt and glorify the idea of money and uh, make you think that there's more deliverance in money than there ever could possibly be When money doesn't buy happiness, take that home with you. Read Ecclesiastes over the course of the next week. And you'll find in the final chapter of that, he reaches a conclusion. I won't be a spoiler here for you. You can look that up yourself. But that's the testimony of someone who has kind of had it all and concluded it's all vanity. Shakespeare said, to thine own self be true. I have to be true to myself. You hear a lot of people in pop culture saying things like, I had to start to understand who I am and I need to be who I am and then that's kind of how I'm going to live. I'm going to have to be true to myself. I had to know myself first. I had to love myself and these kinds of ideas. To thine own self be true. Well, I'll say this. There's some measure of truth in that for the Christian person. The problem is... Which self are you going to be true to? You see, a Christian person kind of has two natures, and this is part of the Christian experience. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Paul talks about it as the old man and the new man. I was talking to uh, Grant Miller the other day, and he was talking about a character that he had come up with that had a kind of a good side and a bad side, you know, and he was showing me this picture. and know, the guy was kind of split down the middle. He was, looked bad on one side, looked good on the other side. And we were talking about that. He likes to come up with these characters, and we talk about them all the time. And I said, well, you know, there's, there's kind of some truth to that in how we live out our lives. You're going to feel at times something in you that says, I want to disobey my mom or my dad. And you're going to have another part of you that says, you know, I need to do what they tell me. They love me, and they take care of me, and... They've been good to me. You kind of got two selves as a Christian. You've got the old man, as Paul puts it. That is your carnal nature, your sin nature that you inherited from Adam, which inclines you to do as you ought not to do. And by the way, it's incredibly important in the Christian church that we recognize this reality One of the worst things that can happen among Christians is when we begin to say, I don't have that man anymore. I am only and ever the good person, right? First of all, that's manifestly untrue to anyone who has a reasonable aperture on your life. A few people I've had tell me that over the course of ministry on more than one occasion. I've I've said, well, I hear what you're saying. Can I ask your wife about that? And it's usually not met with a very kind response. You know, it's kind of like, well, aren't you being presumptuous? How rude of a minister to say something like that. But I believe the point is made, is it not? I mean, if it wasn't a problem, why wouldn't they respond with, oh, sure. She's ready to testify about how I don't ever mess up, right? I'm only the new man, the old man. There's none of that in my life. So it's important that we recognize it, by the way. We recognize it in others. Hopefully, they're going to recognize it in us, and that is going to be a form of charity that we can have towards one another. Right? And important to know. But Paul talks about this, verse twenty-two of Ephesians chapter four. He says that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Now he's saying you got to put off the old man, right? If you pretend you got kind of like a good hat and a bad hat, I'd say the default setting for most people is that you kind of got the bad hat on. Like, you know, you stub your toe or whatever, the first thing that's going to come out of your mouth is likely coming out of the bad hat, right? So it's a challenge, and Paul starts with put off, concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. There is a corrupt nature that is in you. And you're going to have to be purposeful about putting it off. It is that which inclines you to do any number of wrong things. You're going to feel it welling up within you. And you may feel a conflict within yourself at times going, well, I really want to do this thing. That's just what I want to do because I'm mad about it right now or whatever. That's what I want to do. That's part of the Christian experience, by the way. And it's, it's really important that we take this attitude of recognizing we got to put that off. Right? It's there, it's in us. Know the enemy, that's part of the enemy. The enemy is within in many respects, and we gotta put that off. Verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You need to live as you are in the new man and not in the old man. By the way, do you feel any of that conflict within your life? Do you say, I feel sometimes I'm inclined to do this bad thing, or sometimes I feel like I just want to go to church, praise God, and you feel yourself moving around in that? Welcome to the struggle. But guess what? If nothing else, you can leave here affirming this idea that that is an affirmation of a child of God. A natural man who has not the Spirit of God dwelling in him has no such conflict going on. They're perfectly fine with dwelling in, affirming, and exercising the exploits of the old man. They're perfectly fine with it. There's like no conscience involved in it at all. If you have absolutely no conscience in the matter, I could give you no assurance that you have some sort of a spiritual mind going on. But if you're one of those people that says, I feel this inclination at times. I feel, I feel the struggle within me. To go back and forth, and and I feel like I'm fighting this thing. That's what Paul's talking about. You're going to be in the struggle. Here's how you fight it. You put off the old man. You put on the new man. And he gives you some specific advice. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. By the way, when you hear someone say, take that off and put this on, Are you left with the impression that this is something that is going to be conferred upon you passively without your willing and active participation? This is a command to God's people. It's something you're going to be willingly and actively involved with. And I make that point because there are instances in Christianity where people over-assert what happens to men in regeneration. When you're born again, some Christians would say, it eradicates the old man such that you are only ever the new man. And I submit that if that was the case, then Paul was completely off base here to say, you've got to put off the old man. If the old man's eradicated, he's gone. You don't have to put off anything. There would be no need to command you. If your nature is entirely the new man, then there's no need for this command whatsoever because you would always be functioning in the precepts of the new man. So the fact that it is a command and, and we're warned about it tells us that this is part of the Christian struggle. 26, be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Well, it's very difficult to deliver on, is it not? You'll see that it's going to be a challenge as you read through more of these things. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace into the hearers. Now that is a um, verse in the Bible that I think about as someone who stands up and speaks before others and uh, tries to live out the rest of my life. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. That's a very convicting verse. If you honestly think about, I suppose if we had a transcript of an entire day of our conversations, and then at the end of the day sat down with a highlighter pen and said, I'm going to mark out the things that I said that were truly edifying to other people. And maybe with a red underline, I'm going to say, here's the things that were kind of corrupt communication. It would be astonishing what we would find, honestly. So there's a lot said about the tongue and the Word of God, and uh, James teaches us a lot about that as well. But returning to the idea of to thine own self be true. Well, I can affirm that in this sense. The Bible teaches that you are to be true to your new man self, not to your old man self. And I submit that the idea of trying to manage between those two is much more difficult than we make it out to be. And as often as not, when people say, I need to be true to myself in modern society, what they're saying is, I needed to accept the fact that there are certain evident sins that I practice, and I need to be completely okay with that. That's what most people mean when they're saying, I needed to be true to myself. I recognize that there are things in this society that many people say, that's just wrong, or maybe that the Word of God says that's evidently wrong. But I must be true to myself, and that's going to be my guiding precept. Well, I submit that is being true to the old man. You're being true to yourself. You're being true to that wicked side of yourself that remains, that sin nature. But there's nothing wrong with being to your own self true, if that person you're being true to is the spiritual nature that's been imparted to you. And you're trying to live in accordance with, trying to be who you are in Christ, not be who you are in Adam. You see what I'm saying? So I would accept that one only with some serious qualifications regarding which self you intend to be true to. And we need to be true to the new man and put off the old man. Well, life isn't fair. That's another one. Everybody says that. Anyone who's put a few miles on the odometer will realize I've had some things happen that didn't seem fair to me. But life is evidently not fair. And I would again point you to uh, Ecclesiastes as I continue my Ecclesiastes teaser for this week in Bible study. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 11 is interesting. We live not far from a racetrack and, um, you know, there's you bet on horses right um, among other things i guess it's wide open in terms of gambling over there now but used to be it was, it was a horse track so you go and look at the horses and based on some kind of criteria merit or whatever you're going to try to determine is this horse going to win or is some other horse going to win and you're going to place your bets based on that there's going to be some sort of logic like i think this horse is a little bit stronger a little bit faster he runs better in the mud whatever right I've got my criteria such that I have a reason for why this is going to be the strong horse, right? So this is a principle that's available. People bet on the uh, Super Bowl and on the uh, March Madness and all those sorts of things. This principle's kind of in view here. Ecclesiastes nine eleven. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor Yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Now see, he's launching out against the idea that everyone will say, well, the bigger, tougher guy is going to win the boxing match. That's who I'm going to bet on. This horse over here stands a hand taller than the other ones, and I've seen him run, and he seems to have more stamina. He's going to be the one that wins the race. That's the logic that we tend to use in our heads When we see things, we judge them on a surface level. And many times that surface level is viewing attributes that actually are in play as to whether or not they're going to win. But he mentions this, time and chance happeneth to them all. There's guys who have gotten in the ring with some total bruiser. And you just look at the two of them and you're thinking, that guy is going to just obliterate. There's some little dude some big monster, and yet the little guy just cleans the guy's clock like one punch correctly placed on the guy's jaw, and he's laid out. You say, I've never heard that happen. Well, how about David and Goliath, right? We know it happened in the Bible, but it's happened many times. It always makes the headlines when there's some story like this. Some underdog comes in and wins, right? always makes the headlines. And it makes the headlines because it doesn't fit with the way we typically assess things. We think, well, the fairness doctrine would say that, well, they're the better team and they should win. I mean, look at how they played all season long. They've been so consistent. They're just running the plays. They're marching the ball down the field. They just execute all the time. They they take advantage of every single turnover. Look at the stats leading up to the Super Bowl game. And then The team that was supposed to win based on all of that evidence, somehow they get defeated. Right. It happens. Why does it happen? Because this is not an ironclad rule. And if that's how things were set up, you would say, well, it would always be fair that the best team wins. Right. The team with the strongest players and the best stats going into it, they should always win. But time and chance happeneth to them all. Life is not fair. Things happen and they change what you would expect the outcome to be. And it happens to all of us. And we know that it's this way and you kind of have to come to terms with it. However, I find many adults and even myself at times looking at situations where you say, this should not have turned out in this way. That does not seem fair, and I'm upset about it. Now, I've got 55 years on the odometer. That means I've got plenty enough life experience to teach me that that is not a principle that's in play, and yet I can still find myself being upset about the unfairness of something that came to pass. When I know full well that life is not fair... And even if the numbers stack up the way they seem to, and I should have been the victor in some situation, that time and chance happeneth to them all. So these are things that are true. They're proverbial wisdom. They may be thought of as cliché. There are platitudes. You know, why do you say that? Everybody says that. Well, many of them are true if properly applied, and they need to be said over and over again because God's people need to hear some of these things over and over again because we are often slow to hear. Proverbs chapter 1 kind of gets into this matter. And I'm going to skim over this a little bit. Maybe that's another homework assignment. If you're looking for something to read, if uh, Ecclesiastes giving you an entire book to read is too much. All right, here's the second assignment. You can kind of scale it back a little bit. Read Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Here's his purpose to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice and judgment and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel. So this all sounds pretty good. Like if you want to live a wise, informed life, want to know how the world plays out, the book of Proverbs is making this claim about itself that there's a lot of principles and precepts in here that you can learn here rather than learning it through bitter experience. As you're bumping around like a pinball in a pinball machine getting beat around by life with all sorts of situations, there's things that you could learn beforehand without having to get beat around to learn them. And they're laid out for you here. And he starts with this. To understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. The first principle he lays before you is this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Much of what you see in popular society today is an expression of those who have absolutely no fear of God. They deny the existence of God. They don't recognize that God has any authority over them. They don't even think He exists, so they certainly don't think He has any authority over them. And thus, they exalt and glorify things that are evidently contrary to the Word of God. In so doing, they are making manifest that they have no fear of God. That's one of the attributes that Paul ascribes to the unregenerate man. There is no fear of God before their eyes, Romans 3.18. So this idea of having no fear of God is associated with the unregenerate. However, you can have the fear of God and not exercise the fear of God. You understand what I mean by that? There were times as a child when I feared what my father might do to me. I recognized there were certain behaviors I could engage in, And if I did those things, I genuinely feared and recognized He has authority over me. He could punish me in ways that would be very unpleasant. I did have that fear. I recognized it. But I did not always exercise it, right? You can override the fear. You can have the fear and decide, yeah, but maybe I can get away with it, right? Got me into trouble on occasions. Gets all of God's people in trouble on occasions. And this is what people do. The point I'm trying to make here is that while it's true that the unregenerate, those who are not born again, they have no fear of God, this text is not talking about that category of people. It's talking about people who have the fear of God, who are capable of being instructed, who may choose not to act in accordance with their fear of God. You see what I'm saying? Everybody's got in them the capacity to say, I think I can get away with this. And when they do that, they're suppressing their fear of God. They're thinking, the consequences that would come my way are not going to be forthcoming. I'm just going to ignore what should be a corrective in my life, which is the fear and respect of God. My son. See, this is a family discourse. You see that? He's talking to his son here. My son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head and chains about thy neck. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Now this is getting in front of an issue here. This is a situation that is going to happen in the life of a son or a daughter. right? This is going to happen. You want to have this conversation before it happens. You don't want to be doing it on the backside because you want to be giving them wisdom much as you do discipline. You want to do it betimes. You want to do it early. The earlier investments in these things pay the greatest dividends. If you're doing it way on the backside, it's too late. It's going to require nine stitches instead of one. You see what I'm saying? So he's giving him this wisdom in advance for the purpose of his conditional time salvation so that he might be saved from the consequences of practicing sin. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not? If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up. Alive as the grave and whole, and those that go down into the pit, we shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. In other words, let's go take advantage of other people. Take their stuff. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. Be part of the group. Be part of the gang. Is the idea. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, and they lay wait for their own blood. They lurk privily for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain, which taketh away the life of the owners thereof. Now this is speaking, in this context, speaking specifically of highway banditry kind of thing. You know, I'm going to murder somebody and take their stuff. That's a pretty severe Lesson that's being laid out there, and it's a stern warning. I'm sure few of us would say, Well, I don't think it's okay if kids, you know, kids will be kids. They do go out and murder people on the highway and take their stuff. That's just kids being kids. This is a very serious matter that's being raised here. However, this principle is in play even in lesser offenses that are out there, all of which I'm sure we could call to mind very easily. But you can see that he's getting in front of the issue. He's trying to proverbially tell him, there's some truths here that if you will know this in advance, you will spare yourself from all of the horrible consequences of sin that you would have otherwise practiced. He goes on down, he continues on. In about verse 24, he talks about what I call conditional time condemnation. Like if you ignore everything I just told you here, here's what's going to happen. Here's how you will be condemned Here's the consequences that will come into your life in the here and now if you don't do this. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but you have said it not my counsel and would have none of my reproof. In other words, I told you this. You just said, I don't want any part of it. To my own self, I'm going to be true. I want to go do these things and that's what I want to do. And I must be true to myself, right? That's being true to the old man, not the new man. So it's possible that a man can do this. And it says, I also will laugh at your calamity, and will mock when your fear cometh. Yeah, there may come a point where the fear comes upon you like, wow, now I'm starting to realize that these consequences are coming home to roost. And it's a frightful thing. There is an instance here where the Lord says, look, I've told you once, I've told you twice, I've taught you in this, and I'm not going to have pity on you when these consequences come home to roost for you. It's going to be like, this is on you, right? So we're talking about temporal situations here, and it's a dreadful thing. Verse 28 says, Then they shall call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. There's a point of no return in certain practices of sin. You ever thought about that? I mean, God is loving and forgiving and all those things, but it doesn't mean that you can practice some horrible sin And then very late in the game, you say, I want to be forgiven. And he says, okay, you're forgiven. And all the consequences have now gone away. We live at times like that. Like that's the way we can game the system with God, right? But there is a thing called the point of no return, right? There's people I know who have consumed alcohol in massive quantities over the course of their lives. They just did that rebelliously absolutely obliterated their bodies later in life came to the realization man i've just been living in rebellion to god i've just been doing this because i wanted to thought it felt good it was great that's just what i'm going to do and now i'm convicted about it and i need to put off the old man and put on the new man And I know people who have done that. They did it late in life, and that's where they were. The consequences of having destroyed their own bodies with alcohol were not removed, even though they brought their life into alignment with how God would have them to live. There was a point of no return in that issue where it's like, okay, you've done this, And yes, you can be forgiven for it and your relationship with God can be restored in many respects as a result of that. But it doesn't mean the consequences disappear because you've passed the point of no return on consequence. You see that? Now, those consequences are temporal for God's people. You're not going to be eternally punished for that. But it doesn't mean that your temporal consequences have been removed So important that we know that. He talks a lot about that. And then down in verse 33, he kind of gets out of the realm of talking about if you don't do what I told you to. And he goes back to this thing about how to save yourself from these things. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. So that's Solomon giving some proverbial wisdom. And I think those first examples I gave you are kind of examples of wisdom of the obvious sort of things that we hear people say commonly. Even people in church will repeat some of those truisms. Solomon's wisdom is something that's more along the lines of what you're going to hear in church, and maybe more specifically there. As we close, I want to talk about wisdom when things are a little more unclear. See, there are clear things that you encounter. I mean, the issue of disciplining children, I think that's a pretty straightforward thing. It's clearly laid out in the Word of God. And I think the difficulty God's people have is in implementing it, not in understanding it. It's pretty plainly explained there. You know, some of these other things like being true to yourself. I understand that principle if you're being true to the spiritual self that's within you and not true to your old man. But there's other situations that come up in life where you just say, I'm not situationally aware enough to really even be able to fully understand what the problem is. And this can cause people to despair. However, I think there's an error in that mindset, which is that you think unless you're able to explain it to God, He ain't going to be able to help you. And honestly, a more ridiculous notion is hard to imagine. God knows the problem better than you do right? You're talking to an omniscient God, right? So, we need to step back from those problems where we say, I'm not even sure what the root cause of the problem is. I'm not sure about that. Well, set that aside. Does God know what the root cause of the problem is? Yes, He does. Does He know how to solve it? Yes, He does. He can solve it probably in a thousand different ways when we might struggle to come up with one. So, Before we get into that matter, why don't we just step back and recognize who God is. God is God. He knows all these things. We don't have to have all the explanations for our problems where we need wisdom. James starts off this way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting, my brethren. This is a family discourse. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That means when things are tough, things aren't going so well, be joyful about it. Very difficult to do. You're only going to do it to the extent that you maintain a proper, eternal perspective on things. Everything's not going to be perfect in this life. But we've read the end of the book, and we win in the end. Jesus Christ is a successful Savior. We're all headed for glory. What we have to deal with is the problems in the here and now. So that's what James is talking about. We're going to have diverse temptations, okay? The Bible tells us that if you're going through one, at least affirm this in your heart. Word of God told me that I'm going to go through these sorts of things. God was honest with me about what I'm going to encounter. Wouldn't you be disappointed if the Bible you read just said, well, if you're a Christian, everything's going to be hunky-dory all the time. What would you do with all the distress and trouble and worry that you have and all the situations in your life? You would have to conclude either the Bible is nonsense or I am not a Christian at all because my life is full of trouble. But Jesus Christ said, in this world you shall have tribulation. So the Bible levels with you. At least you can exalt God in that. And maybe that brings a measure of joy with it. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Romans 5.3 says, tribulation worketh patience. You want to become more patient, you're going to have to deal with more tribulation. A lot of people don't want to make that trade-off. But that's the truth. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now, here's the meat of what I want to get to, and we'll close on this. If any of you lack wisdom, now that's the situation you're in when you say, I got a problem here. I don't really know how to address this. Maybe you've made a few failed attempts at how I'm going to fix this problem, and you're saying, I need some wisdom in this because what I'm doing is not working. I obviously don't understand it properly. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Now step back from that statement for just a moment. You're in an old Baptist church. Many of you are not old Baptists, but this is old Baptist church, and they used to call us hard shalls. The historical reference to that is, well, they're called a hard shall because they really hammer down on the shalls. The Bible says this shall happen and that shall happen. It says things like, he shall save his people from their sins, and all those hard shells they really hit those shells, And we're kind of known for that. But this is a hard shall verse. And I'm telling you, that's an astonishing and should be a tremendously comforting affirmation to God's people. If you lack wisdom, anybody going to raise their hand today and say, I've got every bit of wisdom I need to handle every single situation in my life. I'm assuming the answer is no. Let him ask God that giveth to all men liberally, well, God's got plenty to give. And it says here he gives liberally and upbraideth not. God's not going to say, well, you know what? It's about time you asked me for that. You know, all these years you'd think you've been going to church all these years. You not just now you're coming around going to ask me for some wisdom. Well, you know, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. That's absolutely ridiculous. Are you so hard of hearing? No. He upbraideth not in this matter. If you're seeking God sincerely for wisdom, God's not going to give you a hard time about it. He's going to give it to you liberally. It shall be given him. Now, to the extent that each and every one of you, I believe, would affirm that I have a wisdom gap in my life. There are some issue or issues in my life where I lack the wisdom to address this properly. This verse says, God shall give it to you. The question is, are you asking for it? He says he shall give it to you. Now, I don't believe this verse is saying, you're going to drop down on your knees today, ask for that wisdom, and it's going to be plopped in your head. You're going to have a magical solution to your problem instantaneously. God rarely works in that way. But it does say He shall give you the wisdom that you require in this. So I submit that to the extent that any of us have that wisdom gap, we have been deficient in calling upon the Lord to give us the wisdom we need. You say, well, you're being hard on me. Well, I'm hard on myself here. This is, everybody's got that wisdom gap. I'm just saying there's a promise of God laid out there that the Bible says He shall give it to you. Are you going to take him up on it? Maybe we should redouble our efforts to be asking God for wisdom in these matters. But it says this, verse 6, But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Like, you don't want to take this matter on by saying, well, I guess I'm going to do that prayer. Brother Dan said, do the wisdom prayer and it shall be given to you. I don't know. I don't really believe it, but I guess I'll try it. That's not really asking in faith. Maybe you need to spend a little time meditating on this statement. It shall be given him. And ask yourself the question, do I really believe the Word of God? I mean, most people say, I believe the Word of God. I want to affirm the Word of God. Well, there's one of the things in there, right? So believe that one. And as you lay hold of that, ask God for it, believing that He shall give it to you. And look forward in anticipation of being delivered in that way. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Don't doubt about it. God said He's going to do it, right? say, well, I just don't see how that's possible. I really don't understand how that could be possible. Well, perhaps we'll close on this. This will be my third close for today. Say, <laughs> I don't really understand how that's possible. Well, maybe you don't believe it. I'm calling on you to believe it today. I've declared it to you. Believe it. Take the Lord up on that offer. Pray for the wisdom you need in your life. And look forward to being delivered in the matter. I believe the Lord will bless that faith Isaiah said it this way Seek the Lord while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You know what that is? Put off the old man, put on the new man, right? You got this unrighteousness that can well up in you and create all kinds of problems in your life. You need to lay that aside. You say, Well, I don't understand how all that works. Well, join the club. None of us do. Isaiah knew that you didn't, and the Lord knew that. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. It's not something you're going to necessarily understand how God does this, or why He does it the way He does it. But you can accept His promises, can you not? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's the God we're calling upon That's the God who has given us proverbial wisdom in His Word. And as the God who has promised that He shall give you the wisdom you need. Call upon Him. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons, preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street, in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.